Now let me ask if you would turn to Luke chapter 17, verses 20 through 37. This is the passage that we'll be looking at this morning. While you're turning there, if you're able, if you'd please stand. Luke chapter 17, beginning in verse 20. This is the word of the Lord. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. They will say to you, look there or look here, but do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in His day. But first He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the days when Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Would you please be seated and would you join me in a word of prayer? Father in heaven, we thank you for the revelation of Your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank You for His condescension, His coming to earth. We thank You that He being God, very God of very God, did not count equality with You, the Father, something to be grasped, but He humbled Himself in obedience to the point of death on a cross. And so we thank You, our Father, that through Your Son, Jesus Christ, we now have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. So we ask that through His words, the words of Your Son, spoken here in this passage, the words revealed by Your Spirit, recorded by Luke, that the church of God might know and see Your will, we ask that through these words, Your Spirit would work in our hearts for Your glory and for our good we ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. 
I'm going to move this pad of paper forward, and I'll tell you, if you were here 16 months ago, you remember as we were recording sermons in the office that I got the opportunity for about two months to draw on the whiteboard while I was preaching, and I absolutely loved it, okay? I'm a visual learner, and so for the last 16 months, I've been looking for an opportunity. I found this on Amazon for $10, okay? So this morning, we have the wonderful opportunity not only to hear the preaching of the Word, but for me to illustrate as we go that you might see and hear more of what God is doing in this passage. And so I'm excited about the opportunity this morning. Now, as we look at Luke chapter 17, let me tell you to understand this passage or really to understand any time that Jesus speaks about the kingdom of God, we first must understand what is happening in the minds of the Jewish audience as Jesus speaks concerning the kingdom of God. So let me tell you, for the the audience that Jesus speaks to, uh, these Jews often conceived of history as a timeline. They conceived of history as a timeline, moving from one side to the next, and in their minds there were two epochs or two ages. In their minds there was the present age. It was the age that they lived in. The present age that the Jews conceived of living in was a present evil age. It was an age where sin reigned, where suffering was real, and all there was at that moment was an anticipation of a future age. A future victorious age where the Messiah would come victoriously, bringing His armies, conquering the kingdoms of the world, and reestablishing the kingdom in Israel for the Jewish people. And so they viewed time as having a present and a future age. And between them, they viewed an abrupt, a sort of sudden change from the present to the future. They were looking for a moment in the future where things would change, the king would return, and abruptly and suddenly would restore the kingdom to Israel. Now, as a side note, this is a roughly biblical idea. It's a roughly biblical idea. We know that God often speaks about a a present evil age and a future victorious age where the Messiah would reign victoriously. But I tell you that as Jesus speaks about the unfolding of redemptive history, He doesn't often speak in these categories, okay? It is one of the reasons why the Jews, when they heard Jesus speaking, were often confused. You see, Jesus doesn't speak so much in terms of the present and future ages. He often speaks in terms of two kingdoms, right? You know that. We've been going through the book of Luke. He often speaks in terms of two kingdoms. And that, the way that Jesus spoke about those kingdoms was not exactly as the Jews thought that He would present it. Jesus spoke in terms, first of all, of a kingdom of this world. A kingdom of this world that the people that He spoke to were presently living in the kingdom of this world. But Jesus also spoke of another kingdom. He would tell His listeners that to understand the unfolding of redemptive history, they must understand the kingdom of God. And when Jesus speaks about the kingdom of God, He speaks of a kingdom that is both future and present. Speaks of a kingdom of God that seemingly overlaps with the kingdom of this world. 
Now, if you're wondering, well, how does Jesus speak about that? And why would we assume that the kingdom is both future and present? Let me give you a few examples that we've seen in the book of Luke. For instance, in Luke chapter 4, now I know you in the back can't see this. Just trust me. It says Luke 4. In Luke chapter 4, at the the advent of Jesus' public ministry, they're reading from the scroll of Isaiah, speaking about the coming kingdom of God, and Jesus says, I tell you the truth, these things, these things that you have heard, they have come to pass in your hearing, okay? They have come to pass in your hearing. That is the present kingdom of God. Luke chapter 10 Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends out the 72 disciples. He tells them to go to every town and every city before He arrives there. And what does He tell them to say to the people? Everywhere that you go, declare to them the kingdom of God has come near to you. The kingdom of God has come near to you. That is the present realization of the kingdom of God in this world. Now, Jesus also speaks about the kingdom in future terms, doesn't He? In Matthew 21... Matthew 21, Jesus says to His hearers, listen, in that day, God will say to those who are seated at His right hand, behold, the kingdom of God has been prepared for you. It is your inheritance. That is a future kingdom of God. A future kingdom of God. So as Jesus speaks about the kingdom of God, He speaks about a kingdom that is being realized in their midst, but also a kingdom that is future. And the people around Jesus are saying, what in the world are you talking about? What a confusing kingdom of God this is. This morning, as we look at Luke chapter 17, here's one of the things we're going to wrestle with. There's a big question here. What's happening here? Why is there an overlap between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world? Why has Christ come and yet He has gone away? And why has God delayed long over us? Why has 2,000 years passed and Christ hasn't returned again? And how, uh, who knows how long it will be until Christ returns again? Why has He given this time period here? Why has He not just simply returned and brought justice for His children and restored the kingdom to the people? Why? Why this? Well, I'm, I'm glad you asked the question because that's the question that's going to be answered in the passage that we look at this morning. Why this? Okay? Now, beginning at the first part of this text in verse 20, it says, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, He answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. For the last four chapters, Jesus has been speaking to His disciples, but sometimes what happens is Jesus is speaking to the disciples. We get a moment where the Pharisees kind of interject, and here the Pharisees interject, and they ask a question. They, thinking of time along a timeline, a present and future age, they ask Jesus, when is this moment? When does the present age disappear and the future messianic age of our Messiah, when does it come? And they are literally looking for an answer to the question in terms of days, months, years, generations. Are we talking next week? Are we talking six months from now, 50 years, 100 years, 1,000 years? When does the kingdom of God come? Jesus likely disappoints them with His answer, okay? And He says the kingdom of God can't be observed with the eyes. 
Literally, the Greek says you, you can't witness it with the seeing of an eye. Okay? It cannot be seen with your eyes. So the kingdom is not here or there. And Jesus is saying, listen, the ways you've conceived of the kingdom of God coming into this world with armies marching forward and the building of castles and of fortresses and the eradicating of the kings of this world and the reestablishing of the kingdom of Jerusalem it is not the way the kingdom of God is coming into this world. Again, likely disappointing the Jews who are listening. Instead, he throws them a curveball. He says, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Okay? Again, referencing this, this time here, uh, the fancy theological phrase, it's not even fancy, is the phrase, the already not yet, okay? This is the already not yet realization of the kingdom of God. Jesus says to them, the kingdom is in your midst. Now, it behooves us, it's so important to us to answer the question, what does Jesus mean the kingdom of God is in your midst? Now, there's been a number of ideas that have been proposed. Let me share with you a few of them. First of all, some people have said the kingdom of God in your midst. It means that Jesus is saying the kingdom is in your heart. It is in you. Each one of you has the kingdom of God in you. That would be something of a personal kingdom. Other people have proposed this idea that the, the kingdom of God that Jesus is referring to is the way that we interact with one another. And so when we demonstrate love and we show mercy and we execute justice, it's the kingdom of God in our midst. It's more of a, a social kingdom. Now, these things certainly are byproducts of the kingdom of God. We see more justice and mercy. We see love within the kingdom of God. But it's, it's not what Jesus is referring to at this moment. And I'll give you one good reason why, okay? You remember who Jesus is speaking to? He's speaking to the Pharisees, right? And I can't envision a scenario where Jesus says to the Pharisees, Guys, the kingdom of God is in your heart, right? You laugh. If you know the Pharisees, you know, okay? The kingdom of God is in the way you love each other. Jesus not giving a shout out to the Pharisees. He never does that, right? As a matter of fact, the one time that Jesus speaks to the Pharisees about the kingdom of God is in Matthew 25. Jesus says to the Pharisees, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and it will be given to those who are doing the fruits of the kingdom, okay? So Jesus would not say to the Pharisees, You've done such a good job, the kingdom of God is in your midst. So what does Jesus mean? It's the first point. It's in the handout in your bulletin. Okay, the first point is this. The kingdom of God is where Christ is or Christ reigns. Okay, that's what Jesus means when he says the kingdom of God is in your midst. The kingdom of God is where Christ is or Christ reigns. Essentially what Jesus is saying in this moment is, listen, Pharisees, the kingdom of God is in your midst, okay? I don't know if he pointed to himself actually, but it's what he means. The kingdom of God is in your midst. Where the king goes, there's the kingdom of God, okay? Where the king is, there's the kingdom. Where the king reigns, there's the kingdom. The kingdom of God follows the king himself. And if you're saying, okay, well, I, I see that, but I'm not sure that this passage proves that, let me give you another example, again, from the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 11. Okay, these are passages we've already worked through. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus is casting out demons, and the Pharisees say, they say, oh, he's casting out demons by the power of Satan. Do you remember that? By Beelzebub himself. And Jesus says, okay, first of all, what a silly idea. You guys are fools, right? And, and then he says, 
a house divided against itself cannot stand, but I tell you the truth, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God is in your midst. You remember that? What is Jesus saying? If by the divine power of God, if I do something that only God can do, then I tell you the truth, the kingdom of God is in your midst. If I am the king, and I demonstrate that through my power and authority, then the kingdom of God has come, and here it is. So this then is what Jesus means by the kingdom of God is in your midst. It is the, the present realization of the kingdom of God. And one of the things we find as Jesus continues to speak about this kingdom is that in this world where Christ presently reigns, we see that primarily happening in the church. I'm going to write that right here, the church. Christ reigns victoriously within His church. And you might say, well, doesn't Jesus reign everywhere? Yes and no. Okay, yes and no. Here's what I mean by that. God the Father is sovereign over all creation. He orders whatever comes to pass. He has given this authority to His Son, Jesus Christ. But do you know what happens when a king reigns over a kingdom? Every subject in the kingdom is submissive to Him. Their hearts are humbly given to Him. They bow their knees to Him and they worship Him as King. And in one very real sense, in the kingdom of this world where we still exist, not every knee is bowed, okay? Not every heart humbly gives in submission to the king, and not every voice is worshiping the Lord, okay? There are millions upon millions upon millions who still live in rebellion to our King, Lord Jesus. So within the church, primarily during this age, is where Jesus Christ reigns. And we know that because within the true church, that's where the saints, they worship the Lord. It's where the knee is bowed, right? It's where the hearts are humbled to declare the glory of our risen King, Lord Jesus. So Christ primarily now reigns within His church. I want you to hold on to that thought because that becomes important as we continue looking at this passage. But here's the second point. Second point as we look at this passage is that when Christ comes again, He brings judgment and salvation. He brings judgment and salvation. Now Jesus uses this opportunity to go forward with a discussion about the kingdom of God. And if you begin looking in verse 26, he gives four different examples, okay? Examples of what it will be like when the kingdom of this world comes to an end and the kingdom of our God is fully realized, okay? And what are the examples that he gives? Let's look at them. Verse 26, he gives the example of Noah. Okay, Noah. And then after Noah, he gives the example of Sodom and Gomorrah with Lot and his family. And then after a few side notes, he gives the example of two who lie down together in bed. And then he gives the example of two who are grinding wheat together. Four different examples, okay? One of the questions that we have to ask then is what do these four examples have in common? What is the point that Christ is trying to emphasize through the, the giving of the example of Noah and of Sodom and Gomorrah and the two who lie down together and the two who grind wheat together? Let me tell you a few things they have in common that are pertinent to the discussion about the kingdom of God. First of all, they're all engaged in very normal activity, okay? This is innocuous, the things that are being described here. You get the days of Noah and the description of Sodom and Gomorrah. What are they doing? 
They're, they're marrying, they're being given in marriage, they're planting, they're growing, they're buying, they're selling, okay? We get the description later of the two who lie down to go to sleep. Well, that's a very normal thing, laying down to go to sleep. And the, and the two who are grinding wheat together, they're working, grinding wheat, preparing their food, okay? We're not meant to read those examples and find anything moral or amoral about them, okay? Immoral about them. There's no moral statement being made. So we don't read it and say, well, look at those people in the days of Noah, marrying and being given in marriage, okay? Or eating and drinking. That's why God judgment, judged them. It's, it's not the statement that Jesus is making. The statement that he's making is in all of these circumstances, normal life is moving forward and then comes judgment. It's a sudden judgment. It's a surprising judgment. It's one that the people were not anticipating. You put it into modern language, it would sound something like this, okay? The people all going about their everyday lives. They were going to work, and they were coming home from work. They were talking about what's on television. They were talking about the weather. They were going to their children's sporting events. They were wondering who's going to win the football game later in the afternoon. And then, boom! In the blinking of an eye, all of the sudden, without anticipation or expectation, judgment came, okay? It's the first takeaway from those examples. It's sudden. It's unexpected. But the second thing they all have in common is that there are two groups of people in every circumstance, right? Two groups of people. One group who is saved and one group who is judged, isn't there? Noah and his family, they're saved in the ark. They're saved by God. Lot and his family minus his wife, they're saved from the sulfur that rained down from heaven. Two lying in bed together. One, it says, is taken, and I don't like that word. I think the word has been, first of all, I don't like the translation of it. I don't also like all the baggage that comes with the word. The actual text says that he is brought with, okay? They are brought with, okay? So there's one lying in bed, and, and he's brought with. There are two women who are grinding wheat, and one is brought with. In all four examples, one group of people is saved. The other group of people, the word that's used over and over again is destroyed, right? As Noah and his family were saved on the ark, the people were destroyed by the flood. As Lot and his family minus his wife are saved, his wife and all the people are destroyed. The two lying in bed, one is taken with, the actual word says that one is separated out. Okay, so not left behind, separated out. Two grinding wheat, one is taken with, the other is separated out. The picture that Christ is painting is that at the end of the kingdom of this world, at the return of Christ, when the kingdom of God is fully realized, suddenly, unexpectedly will come judgment and salvation. One of the very important implications then is that our saving, our salvation, does not come through our proximity to other people, right? And I know you say, oh, of course it doesn't, but Sometimes we can be fooled by this, right? We have a spouse who brings us to church, and so we go to church with them, and we think that by being near to them or by being drugged to church by them that we're saved. I think as children, you can think this about your parents. I'm, I'm close in proximity to them, and because of them, I am saved, right? That we get example after example of those who are not saved by their proximity to other people. They're simply saved in the day of judgment by their relationship to the king who now reigns victorious over the church and will one day come again bringing that judgment and that salvation. So that's the second point that comes from this passage. 
The warning of Christ upon His return is that He will come suddenly and He will bring with Him both judgment and salvation. And so a, a question still remains then, okay? If this is true and this is true, what's happening during this time period in relationship to the reign of Christ and the judgment and salvation that are coming? What is to be happening in the church, for instance? What is to be happening in relationship to the church and the world? In relationship to the church and the coming kingdom of God? Well, it's a good question, and it connects us to the last verse of this passage. Verse 37 says, They said to him, Where, Lord? They said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. There's nothing like an ambiguous question to clear up an ambiguous passage, right? What do you mean, where? Where what? I think the disciples, having heard Jesus' examples of Noah and of of Sodom and Gomorrah, are asking a question about the setting and the scenario in which this final judgment will come, like where and how and in what way, okay? That's my understanding at least. How are these things going to unfold, right? And it probably lends itself to an idea that they didn't get the cataclysmic nature of the return of Christ. They probably hadn't yet gotten a big enough vision for what it looked like when Christ returns. Even though he said it's like lightning flashing across the sky, they still are kind of underestimating the return of Christ. Where, Lord? But the important part is the answer that Jesus gives. Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. And Jesus isn't making some off-color remark. It's not an odd statement for him to make. It's actually, it's, it makes a lot of sense once you understand what he's saying, okay? So if you've ever seen vultures, right? And I, I, as I was writing this, I was thinking, if any of you live over off of Boonesboro Road or Burnt Bridge Road, there is a pack of vultures over there. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen it. Um, I say pack, I know it's a flock, but it, it, they behave like a pack, a pack of wolves, right? There's a pack of vultures over there, and one day you'll be walking and you'll see a dead animal on the road, and the next day it'll be, just be a pile of bones, just like that, okay, the vultures. What Jesus is saying is, listen, if you're looking for a body and you're scanning the horizon of a desert or of a woods, and it's very hard to find a body in the midst of a, a, a vast terrain, but you can identify the location of a body by the vultures that circle, can't you? It's an easy indication that something is there. Jesus is saying that to identify the the coming of the kingdom of God, you look for the signs, you look for the evidences, okay? That there will be evidence of the return of the king. It's very similar to us saying whether there's smoke, there's fire, or if it looks like a duck and it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it must be a duck, okay? Those are phrases that we use. They indicate that there is evidence, though you may not see the thing coming, you will see the signs of the thing that is coming. You will see the signs of the coming of the kingdom of God. Let me tell you then, concerning the signs of the coming of the kingdom of God, let me tell you, I think, one of the tragedies in the modern church. One of the tragedies in the modern church is that many Christians look to the kingdom of this world for the signs of the coming of the king. Okay? Many Christians in this world look to the kingdom of this world for the signs of the coming king. And let me tell you how we do this, okay? There is often 
conversations and books being written and articles being published about what's happening in Russia and what's happening in China and what wars are being fought in the Middle East and who's being elected president and what they're doing or what they're not doing. And now these are signs of the coming of the kingdom. Few ideas taken out of obscure passages from the book of Revelation and applied to the coming of the kingdom of God. But you see, Nine times out of ten, when Jesus speaks about signs of the coming kingdom, he speaks about signs that are being demonstrated in the church, okay? Signs that have been given by Jesus, deposits given to the church where Christ reigns as evidences of the coming king, as evidences of the kingdom which will be fully realized one day in the future. You see, the church has been commissioned to declare and to witness these signs. And that's where we see the evidence of His coming. Now, what are the signs? What are the evidences entrusted to the church that the King, Lord Jesus, will one day return in the future? It's very interesting because these signs are correlated with the commission of the church, okay? The church where Christ Jesus reigns during this time has been given a twofold commission, and they very much relate with the two things that come out of this passage, okay? The worship of the King and the witness of the coming judgment and salvation. Those are the commissions of the church. That is the design of the church. So you say, well, isn't the church supposed to also make potluck dinners? And isn't the church supposed to also be involved with mercy ministry in the world? Yes, those things are true, but they're derivatives of the primary design of the church to worship the king and to witness his second coming, to witness his first coming and his second coming. And so many people throughout the history of the church have described the purpose of the church as both worship the king and witness to His first and second coming. That is what the church has been designed to do. And it comes out in this passage, okay? That's the design of the church. That is the signs that have been given to us. And you might be saying, okay, but practically, how does that get worked out in the church? Let me tell you, Jesus Christ has given us all of these wonderful tools to be administered within the church that we might worship Him and serve as a sign of His return. He has given the preaching of the Word. It's the very thing we're doing right now, the reading and the preaching of the Word. What's a sign of the return of Christ? The preaching of His Word. It's the best sign, okay? He has given us the sacraments, right? The sacraments to be administered by the church where Christ reigns as worship of Him and as a sign of His return, the coming judgment and salvation. And you say, well, okay, how is the Lord's Supper a sign of His return? If you don't know how it is, you haven't been paying attention to the things we say every month, right? The body and blood of Christ, which has been broken for you, it is a sign that He has come in the past and that He will one day return. And when He returns, He brings judgment and salvation. These signs are demonstrated before the church every month, every week. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. What are the other signs of His first coming and His second coming? The prayers of the saints the joining of us with our voices, with the angels in heaven singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. This is the worship and witness of the church. The hatred of sin, the love of righteousness, the pursuit of justice and mercy, all of the things that define the church in our worship and witness, they are evidences to the world around us that the Lord Jesus Christ has come and that He will one day return. They are the signs. 
They're the declaration of these things. It is where the world is directed to look for the evidence that Jesus Christ will one day return. Now let me just, as we wrap up then, let me take this big idea, comes from Scripture, and let me apply it then to the season of life for our church, okay? The season of life for our church. Again, this morning we talked about how this is Vision Sunday. We're moving towards the building of a building. And you might ask the question, Mercy Presbyterian Church, why build a building? Okay? And there are lots of good concerns you might have. Buildings are divisive. They can be. Okay? Buildings can be idols. They can be. Don't we have better things to spend our money on? Well, that depends. Okay? Depends on how God is leading us and what He's doing in the life of our church. You might have baggage from past churches you've been at where they did this poorly and you're saying, don't build a building. It's a terrible idea. Okay? Why is Mercy Presbyterian Church building a building? Let me tell you why. Okay? Our main concern is the worship and witness. The worship of our Lord Jesus Christ and the witness to His return. That one day He's coming again. And let me tell you something. This has become increasingly harder and harder for our church. Not because of you, and I think not because of us, okay, but because of the circumstances we find ourselves in. Let me tell you something. For the last 26 months, we have worshipped in five different locations, okay? You do the math, right? Forest Middle School, Forest Elementary School, back to Forest Middle School, almost to JF, then to the, the yard at Knights of Columbus and here into the YMCA. That's 26 months, five different locations. Those five different locations represent 20 to 27 different scenarios that we had to explore Leases that we explored, landlords that we met with, a ton of time was consumed on finding a place for this group of people to worship, this congregation. And we even have questions in our mind now. You know, the YMCA, they, they're a great landlord, but we signed six-month leases with them because they don't know what's going to happen in the next six months, okay? We have tried to present next week, October 24th, the opportunity to worship outdoors together. We've tried to present it to you as an opportunity, but being realistic, there's a swim meet here next Sunday morning, and we are at the whim of the YMCA. We must meet outdoors. That's just the reality of where we're meeting and what we're doing, okay? No one knows then what next week holds. In January, I'll tell you right now, in January, there's another swim meet. So prepare yourselves, buy a warm jacket. Some of us will be outside worshiping at the end of January, okay? or the Lord will do something else to find us a place to worship. And what concerns the elders and the deacons and the staff and the congregation of this church is not whether we have air conditioning or heat or whether our seats are cushy or hard or whether it's raining or dry. We are not concerned so much about those things. It would be nice to be comfortable, but that's not why we're building a building. The questions that we're asking every week is, will the 350 Christians at Mercy Presbyterian Church be able to gather to worship the Lord? Will they be able to hear the preaching of the Word? Not just hear with their hearts, but will they be able to hear it with their ears? Or will we be meeting somewhere outdoors where we get 20 different speakers, but the sound is just lost into the woods behind us, and they can't hear the preaching of the Word? Will they be able to participate in the administration of the sacraments? Will they be able to take the Lord's Supper and witness the baptisms that happen before them? I'll tell you one of the great travesties of the last two months, having two services, there's a third of our congregation who has missed two baptisms. And that's a bad thing. 
It's not a good thing, okay? It's not our desire. Those are the questions. Will the saints at Mercy Presbyterian Church be able to meet, to gather, to pray, to worship? Will they have fellowship and community among themselves? Will these signs, the witnessing of the Lord Jesus Christ, the witnessing of the coming again, the judgment and salvation that is one day in the future coming, will these things be happening among us as we have been commissioned to do? Because these are non-negotiables. These are the things that must be true that the church must be doing if she's to function as a true church. That's why we're building a building. That's why we're endeavoring upon a capital campaign. And that's why we're asking you to join us in praying, okay? For the next five weeks, will you pray with us? And there's a few things we're asking you to pray. Pray that the Lord God would lead us, okay? Pray that the Lord God would open hearts the hearts of His people here at Mercy, to give. Pray that our desire would be to sacrifice something important to us for something that is more important to us, okay? And that through that, pray that the Lord God, as He leads us in this vision, that a, a building would be built on that property on 811, a property that God has given us in His mercy and grace, that a building would be built there and many people would wander into that building by the leading of the Holy Spirit, that they would hear the preaching of the Word, that they would see the administration of the sacraments, that they would hear the voices of the saints at mercy joined together, that they would witness those things, that they would hear of mercy that had not been received but now has been received, that they would see all of that, that they would be moved by the Spirit of God to witness the coming judgment, and that they would come to be saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. That those things would be happening in that building for generations to come. That's my prayer. I hope you'll join me and you'll join our elders and our deacons in praying that very thing. And that through these tools and resources for many generations to come, Christians would join in that building to worship the Lord. That they would join to witness His second coming. To testify for the truth that Christ has come and that He is coming again. That many saints in that building would join with us as we're going to do in a few moments, singing, Rejoice, the Lord is King. Again, I say, rejoice. As we worship our God and our King together. It's the commission of the church it is what has been entrusted to us, and it's what we're praying for as the Lord God leads us into this new season of life for our church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you, and we ask, Lord God, that this vision would not be our own, but it would be yours given to us. We ask, Lord God, where our selfish ambition, our greed, where our sin can get in the way, we ask, Lord God, that you would save us from ourselves. We ask, Lord God, that you would burden us by your Spirit, that you would burden this congregation of people to prayerfully consider how you might use them for your glory, for your worship, for the declaration of the beauty of our God and of His Son, Jesus Christ, who has come to redeem us. That you might use us 
to be a visible declaration of the first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and of the guarantee of His second coming. That when He returns again, in a sudden moment, in the blink of an eye, He will bring salvation for us. He will usher in fully the kingdom of God. And we will be with Him in glory. That we might also declare as He comes the judgment He brings. That the world might be warned. That lost sinners might have the opportunity to turn and repent. And that You would do this by the work of Your Spirit, Lord God. Here at Mercy Presbyterian Church. For Your glory and for our good we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.